Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 9, Moscow's Plague, the tale of Dr. Afanasy Shafonsky. The symptoms were worrying, very, very worrying. The young doctor examined his patient, already delirious with a savage and fiery fever. Buboes under the armpits, large red, pink, purple and black sores across the skin. Telltale signs of a horrendous illness. And this patient was not the only one so afflicted. Some were near death, some were already dead. Dr. Afanasy Shafonsky senior physician of Moscow's General Infantry Hospital, despite only being 30 years of age, decided to take action, separating those showing symptoms from those not yet infected. He wrote to his superior, Dr. Andrei Rinder, head surgeon of Moscow City, asking for his help. Rinder came and applauded the quarantine, but did little else. He did not believe the situation was serious, and thus saw no need to bother anyone higher up. But only a few short weeks later, by the 21st of December, 1771, Shafonsky found himself short-handed. Ten of his attendants were dead. He had already sealed the hospital shut, locking himself out from the rest of the world, along with the remaining medical staff and patients. He had buried those dying of the mystery ailment seven feet down with lime. The police noticed that the hospital was closed off and became alarmed. Rinder, with a commission of another seven doctors, returned to the hospital, although it is difficult to say whether they inspected the patients or not. Rinder consulted with Shafonsky by shouting over a lit fire, the fumes of which were supposed to purify the air of any illness. Nonetheless, the commission agreed with Shafonsky. This disease might very well be the plague. But as yet, panic did not take over. For one thing, no other outbreaks had been reported. For another, this unusually warm Moscow winter finally went through a cold snap. The cases at the hospital fizzled out by mid-January. And then there was Rinder, who attracted his earlier opinion that the illness was pestilent. Just a severe fever, in his opinion, exacerbated into fatality by filthy conditions at the hospital. Two narrow barracks with 25 people in each, crammed together into fetid, dirty darkness. Shafonsky, released from his self-imposed quarantine, continued to quarrel with Rinder, accusing him of malpractice and misdiagnosis. Their clash was almost as much about personalities as it was about medicine. Rinder was an aged, tired German, a native of Nuremberg, who had lived in Russia since 1736, serving as a doctor in the frontier outpost of Arenburg. His career had only finally taken off in 1765, when he had been awarded the prestigious post of head of Moscow's medical services. Shafonsky, in contrast, was a young and energetic Ukrainian, who had received rapid advancement almost as soon as he had received his medical degree at the University of Strasbourg. The former represented the past of Russia's medical establishment, dominated by foreigners. The latter was part of a new wave, 
native Slavs with European educations. Unfortunately for Moscow, it was Shafonsky who was right. The disease was the plague. And although the cold had briefly driven it away, it was soon back. By March, textile workers were beginning to die in large numbers, and with the same suspicious symptoms. The huge factory complex, known as the Big Wool Yard, with 2,528 workers and their dependents living on or near the site, was the epicentre. Since the 1st of January, 113 people there had died. Rinder had already visited the place in late January, but had decided again that it could not be the feared pestilence, so he kept the information to himself. By early March, though, the situation was dire. A committee of doctors affirmed the affliction was similar to the plague, and little wonder. Packed together in tiny, dirty living rooms, working jowl by jowl in hot, humid and dusty conditions, relieving their tedious daily experiences with bouts of drinking. The place was a hotbed for infectious disease. Unsurprisingly, most cases were family members, like the Grigoriev brothers, all three dying on the 23rd of February. The government, incandescent that a cluster of infection had gone unobserved for nearly three months, now took measures. On the night of the 13th of March, the factory was evacuated with over 500 people sent to two quarantine buildings rapidly set up in empty manufactories, and 27 infected sent to a plaguehouse. In the quarantine, men and women were kept separately, administered by stewards and senior workers, who could punish minor crimes with a bread and water regime, and major ones with deprivation of all food. The government insisted, however, that only light beatings be issued. Welts might disguise plague symptoms, and the authorities did not want to provoke discontent. Quarantining the Big Wool Yard's residents was the easy part of the operation. Now they had to find all of the workers who lived off-site, nearly 2,000 of them. Dr Rinder, under a cloud of disgrace, took to his bed and died on the 21st of April, 1771. He thus left Shafonsky and his colleagues to deal with a crisis about to claim the lives of over 50,000 people. Russia was no newcomer to dealing with Yersinia pestis, more commonly known as the Black Death. Like the rest of the world, the country had gone through the terrible scourge of the mid-14th century, with results only slightly less calamitous due to the fact that there were few towns in Russia at the time. As elsewhere, the pestilence showed scant regard for social rank, taking away so many members of Moscow's ruling house that the dynasty very nearly died off. The next two centuries saw recurring outbreaks of greater or lesser severity. The last truly devastating recurrence in the Russian Corlands had been in 1654-1655, when thousands had died. In the central town of Kostroma, only 1,895 of 5,356 taxable men were left alive by the end of the disaster. But occasional flare-ups still hampered the southern peripheries, where rapid colonisation, constant warfare and expanding trade routes provided fertile ground for the disease to flourish. Developed as early as the 14th century, 
the Russian government's main weapons in this war were cordons and movement bands, but both were easily evaded. The border guards were usually lax and very much susceptible to the odd bribe. Merchants and travellers had no incentive to go through the checkpoints. Time would be lost as the guards did their checks, and there was always the possibility that goods would be seized and destroyed if infection was feared. The death penalty was sometimes imposed as punishment for evading the cordons in extreme situations, as noted by Heinrich von Staten, a German visitor to Russia in 1570. Throughout the country, all cities, monasteries, settlements and villages, as well as all the roads and highways, were guarded so that a person could not pass from one to another, and if a person was caught by the guard, he was immediately thrown into the fire that was next to the guard post, along with everything he had with him, wagon, saddle, bridle. Otherwise, neither the government nor the people had effective ways to fight epidemics. Basing their efforts on the malarial theory of disease, that bad air quality spawned illness, the state focused on constructing aromatic fires, often using incense in large quantities. To make sure channels of communication were kept open, letters from affected areas had to be doused in vinegar, passed over fires, and rewritten several times before they reached their highly placed recipients. Houses with the stricken were marked and isolated. Special groups of workers were assigned to dispose of corpses in mass graves. For their part, the people turned to the church and its holy rituals, icons and prayers for aid. They could do little more. Generally distrusted, doctors were hardly any more effective. Dr. Johann Fischer, a military physician with the Russian army during a fit of plague in 1738 in the northern Balkans that killed an estimated 30,000, prescribed wearing special amulets or drinking liquid pitch. Suppurating or lacerating the buboes, along with forced bleeding and vomiting, were cures that usually killed. There were constant attempts to better organise quarantine stations along roads and in ports, but once emergencies died down, funding and interest dried up, leaving the posts to rot into uselessness. Like most of the other 18th century epidemics, that which stalked Moscow in 1771 had its origins on the country's conflict-strewn southern border. In 1768, the Russians had launched a war against the Ottoman Turks and were pushing into that empire's Balkan territories, into what is today Moldova and Romania. But as they did so, they advanced ever deeper into a land ruled by the plague, which had recurred practically every year for over a decade in the capital of Istanbul. Soon cases began popping up among the Russian garrison forces and in supply depots. The Finnish Dr. Gustav Oreas, sent to check upon the situation, gave the following detailed list of symptoms. This disease always begins with great pain in the head. At the same time, almost everybody infected by it feels nauseated, yet with few does vomiting happen by itself. Soon the sick fall into very great despondency feel anxious and have a very great heat, to which delirium is joined with the majority. Buboes and carbuncles sometimes come out from the very beginning of disease, and in this case the disease does not continue long, yet sometimes they show themselves within 12 to 24 hours, 
counting from the onset of the disease. On the third, fourth, or at most the fifth day, the buboes separate or dissolve, while the carbuncles begin to separate themselves from the healthy parts, in which case there is the best hope for recovery, or on the contrary, the sick die. A large part of the sick completely come to their senses several hours before the end, say that they feel better, even go so far as to ask to eat. At death, or soon afterwards, the places around and on the very buboes and carbuncles become bluish and darken, while under the skin dark spots quickly spread in great profusion. The most powerful infection of the disease proceeds from the dead, and particularly from their clothing. But there are many examples that some suddenly die after having incautiously merely lain upon or firmly touched the bed or clothing of the dead. Of our sick infected by the plague, one can calculate that a third recover, but of the local inhabitants, much the greater part die of it, because their relatives in this case immediately abandon them, besides which they do not take any medicine. The plague quickly danced around the cordon lines, the fleas and rats carrying it, hiding on the clothes of bedraggled refugees, in sacks and bags of army supplies, in the packets of cloth and textiles carried by traders. In July 1770, it was wreaking havoc in Kiev, at this point a settlement of 20,000. The government reacted by setting up quarantine zones, establishing a hospital and sealing off the merchant's district, the apparent epicentre. As the death rate began to climb and daily life ground to a halt, social discontent started to simmer. Only the arrival of the winter cold and a concomitant decline in fatalities calmed the situation down. Roughly 2,000 had been killed. Moscow was not to get off so lightly. But for the moment, there was a deceptive sense of calm. The March outbreak in the massive textile factory, the big wool yard, did not spread far. Despite initial laxness, the arrival of Senator Pyotr Yeropkin and his takeover of Moscow's anti-plague measures energised the search for the remaining workers, most of whom were safely quarantined. Empress Catherine the Great, tremendously worried by the situation, had formulated an emergency plan of action if worst came to the worst. Moscow was to be sealed off, with travel to and from the metropolis of a quarter of a million people prohibited. Cordons several layers thick would be established along the road, especially the fast government highway to St. Petersburg, the imperial capital. The clergy were told to be on alert, to conduct public prayers, and to persuade their audiences to obey the government's instructions. Doctors prescribed that public places and homes should be kept cool and clean, with fumes from vinegar, burning gunpowder, or juniper berries keeping the air fresh. Ever the enlightened empress, interested in the advance of science, Catherine even ordered a secret medical experiment. A surgeon should select hopelessly sick victims, house them in dry, cool quarters, give them cold water with vinegar to drink, and rub them with ice twice a day. The one patient to whom this royal novelty was applied apparently recovered. Soon, the disease renewed its remorseless attack. In a searing hot June, cases began to crop up once more. This time, though, they were not localised to a single centre, but scattered throughout the city. By the end of July, 
catastrophe had well and truly struck, with hundreds falling dead per day. Corpses lay strewn on the roads. The police were seen pulling bodies out of houses with iron hooks, but this caution hardly protected them. 242 officers, one half of Moscow's minuscule police force, was dead by the end of 1771. Reinforcements were drafted in, including imprisoned convicts. Among the latter, the fatality rate was truly staggering, with some 85% of them being dead by early October. Priests began to perform public prayers and cross processions, although these practices soon came up for criticism among the doctors. Too many people gathered in one place, and besides they fanned the flames of popular superstition. All factories were closed on the 17th of August. Thousands began to flee, especially the aristocratic and mercantile elite. By the end of the month, the population may have been as much as halved, caused both by casualties and flight. The local authorities begged Catherine not to implement her emergency measures. Moscow was too big to fully lock down, they argued, and there was not enough food. But she went ahead, angered by her subordinates' recalcitrance, and frightened for St. Petersburg, should the plague move north. For those still in the city, the tension was unbearable. The government's measures had already considerably backfired. Intended to reduce panic, using the silence and dark of the night to set up bonfires and move the potentially sick to quarantine areas had instead only increased fear. Scared of being locked up in a stricken house or having their worldly goods burnt, people refused to report instances of affliction, instead fleeing, taking their potentially infected bodies and goods with them. As September began and the heat continued, food became increasingly scarce. The supply networks had essentially collapsed. Food was not entering the city, and the reach of the reserves was limited by a lack of wagon drivers and open shops. Quarantine was hated, regarded as certain death. Doctors, already disliked as intrusive and disdainful foreigners, were now objects of burning anger, especially given their advice to cease religious services, one of the few comforts left to Moscow's damned denizens. One such religious ritual came to be at the centre of this brewing storm. An icon of the Virgin Mary had long sat above the Vavara gates, a dilapidated section of Moscow's medieval walls, with trees and other bushes protruding from the crumbling masonry. Quickly stories circulated about the icon, that it was producing miraculous cures. Crowds began to throng, with a few ringleaders collecting donations to buy a silver case for the wondrous image. One such rabblemonger, a factory worker, claimed to have had a dream starring the Saviour and the Virgin. Jesus, infuriated by the Russian people's impiety, had decided to send a hail of stones as a punishment for their sins. But Mary had interceded asking instead for the apparently milder punishment of a three-month pestilence. So the people pressed around Mary's image at the Vivara gates, hoping against hope that she might intervene once more. The mob was even being led by members of the clergy, normally relied upon by the government to keep the people calm. 
On the 15th of September, Ambrosi, Moscow's archbishop, decided the crush around the icon was a public hazard. After asking for the crowd to disperse and receiving a flat refusal, he dispatched a small team of officials, priests and soldiers to collect both the image and the donations collected for the silver frame. Arriving at 8 o'clock in the evening, the archbishop's emissaries were beaten back, with one of their number captured and tied up. Incensed by Ambrosi's attempt to seize their last hope of salvation, the mob rang the local church bells, summoning reinforcements to create a force of some 9,000 people. They surged along the road to Red Square, their target being Ambrosi. Together they smashed through the Kremlin gates and moved to the monastery in which Ambrosi normally resided. Since he was not there, however, the horde satisfied itself with tearing apart the monastery's rich furnishings, stealing all the alcohol they could find from the massive wine cellar and beating the archbishop's brother half to death. Across Moscow, quarantine zones were attacked and their inmates liberated. Medical institutions were particular targets for plundering and arson. Finally, on the morning of the 16th of September, this regiment of rioters found the luckless Ambrosi hiding in a choir loft in the Donskoy Monastery on Moscow's outskirts. Dragged out before a crowd of 500 people, he was thrashed to death in a horrendous two-hour-long ordeal. A priest described the bishop's gory end. They pierced the eyes, cut up the face, pulled out the beard, stabbed the chest, broke the bones. In a word, his body was a single wound. Having beaten him to death, they withdrew a little, fouling the air with their tongues. Noticing, however, that the right hand made a movement to wave, they betook themselves to beat about their head with staves for a time. Having withdrawn again, they saw that the sacred sufferer shrugged his shoulders, so they beat a third time until some churchman, a servant of a devil's church, dealt the last blow, cutting away some of the head, which part remained hanging over one eye. The body was left alone for hours as the monastery clergy were afraid that removing it would provoke another attack. Senator Pyotr Yeropkin, Moscow's anti-plague supremo, had to restore calm with stringency. Personally leading a company of 130 soldiers and two field cannon, he resolutely marched on the Kremlin and confronted the drunken company, still holding court in the ancient fortress of the Tsars. Several times he told them to go home or face the consequences. They chose the consequences. The soldiers opened fire with their muskets and when their ammo was spent, charged with bayonets. The cannons let loose grape shot, killing indiscriminately. A witness tearfully related. Oh my God. What a terrible... And sorrowful spectacle of the fatherland. Those drunk did not remember who stabbed them. Others, from mercy, had arms and legs broken and were bound and put in the cellar. 
the bloodied Muscovites pulled back to Red Square, and once more rang church bells, summoning reinforcements. Again the muskets and cannons roared, sending the rioters scurrying down side streets. The fight lasted nearly four hours. At its end, many of the mob lay dead, from seventy-eight to as many as a thousand, depending on the estimate used. One of Yeropkin's men was killed, and seventeen were wounded. On the next day, what was left of the crowd reassembled and tried to negotiate. They demanded individual burials for the infected dead, the release of their arrested comrades, a general pardon for the rest, the closure of quarantine zones, the reopening of drinking holes and public baths, and the rapid expulsion of all doctors and surgeons from Moscow. Again, the government's troops told them to go home. Again, they refused. Two cavalry detachments quietly flanked the mass of people. When a final, definitive refusal came from the throng, the horsemen charged, slashing down with their sabres. Three days of sustained violence had left the city's streets slick with blood. It was only now that the weather began to turn. The end of September brought with it an early freeze, which helped drive the plague back and reduce mortality rates. Emergency measures were relaxed and food began to flow in, along with people returning home from their places of flight. In early November, punishments were meted out to the rioters. Two men, a serf and a merchant, were hanged for the murder of Archbishop Amphorosi. As retribution for the uprising, 64 of the imprisoned rioters were chosen to suffer exemplary punishment. Two of their number were hanged outright, while the others were whipped, had their nostrils slit, and were exiled for hard labour. But even as calm returned to Moscow and mortality dropped off, the city's hinterland began to suffer. The people who had abandoned the capital often brought the disease with them as they searched for shelter. Ivan Tolchonov, a young merchant in Dmitrov, 70 miles north of Moscow, wrote, The common people began to scatter to nearby towns and villages, and some of them were themselves already infected, while others carried off clothing and other things impregnated with that death-dealing poison. So the infection multiplied among many towns and villages, and especially the villages that lie close to Moscow lost more than half of their inhabitants. In Dmitrov too, this evil encroached, although not very strongly, yet 40 persons died from it, and the greater part of them in houses which either received belongings from Moscow or relatives arrived without having taken precautions. Other cities in central Russia too began reporting the affliction. By the end of 1772, when the plague finally exhausted itself, some 120,000 were dead, 50 to 60,000 of whom were Muscovites. In its reaction to and handling of the plague, Russia was not very different from other European states of the time. The highly infectious disease made inroads into many major European cities throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, often piggybacking on the disruption caused by famine, war and weather changes. 
the climate was indeed a pronounced factor. The years 1770 and 1771 in Russia saw considerable changes from the norm, with short, warm and wet winters and long summers, providing the pestilence with perfect conditions for a prolonged slaughter. Nor was the riot unique to Russia. The ravages of plague often brought social discontent in its wake, as fear and food shortages made tempers short and volatile. The inadequacies of early modern urban policing meant the agents of public order were able to keep the people at bay when discontent turned to rage. Those same inadequacies often rendered the few measures the government could undertake, like cordons and quarantines, useless. There were far too few police and administrators to thoroughly inspect the constant traffic of goods and people flowing in and out of major population centres. This was one area where Russia was at a significant disadvantage compared to its counterparts. Its borders stretched over thousands of miles, making effective cordons even more difficult. And its military and economic expansion to the south brought Russians into ever closer interactions with peoples in and from the repeatedly plague-struck Ottoman Turkish Empire. It is no coincidence that one of the initial outbreaks in Moscow in early 1771 occurred in a textile plant using fabrics exported across the Black Sea. But still, nowhere on the continent was medical knowledge advanced enough to identify the true vectors of the disease, rats and fleas. Indeed, many Moscow physicians, including both doctors Rinder and Shafonsky, with whom this tale began, lacked even the knowledge to properly diagnose the plague. Most of them had never encountered it personally, and thus were left dependent on often inadequate textbook descriptions. The fact that the deadliest form of the illness, pneumonic plague, does not have exterior symptoms made their jobs even harder. For many, the idea that foul air spawned infectious disease remained the most persuasive theory. Catherine the Great also subscribed to this notion. After the plague had died down, she did not resume her ambitious project to construct a magnificent new palace in the Kremlin, fearing that the digging work required for the foundations would release noxious fumes and thus once again set off an epidemic. Since they did not understand the disease, physicians could scarcely offer a real cure. Take the advice of Dr. Yagelsky, one of the leading doctors in Moscow during the outbreak. In the absence of professional medical care, plague patients should be given acidic and cooling food and drink. Spiritus nitrodulcis, an alcoholic solution of ethyl nitrate, and Peruvian bark might help if properly used. Sweating should be encouraged, and mild emetics employed in case of nausea, but bloodletting and weakening drugs must be avoided. Wherever possible, healthy persons should leave infected places. If unable to leave, they should stay calm, keep clean, and eat properly. Of course, the last pieces of advice were not necessarily bad ones. But Russia, like all European nations at the time, had only the most rudimentary concept of public health, and next to no government services for coordinating it. It was nearly impossible to inform people about these general hygiene measures, 
or enforce their observance. The disastrous Moscow Plague of 1770 to 1772 did lead to some small steps in this direction. However, medical knowledge, public health systems and treatments remained underdeveloped, leaving Russia vulnerable in the next century to despoilation by that epoch's great sickness, cholera. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm-hmm.